You would think, perhaps, that I'd need a new text to illustrate sloth. However, there is such a great illustration of sloth right here in the text I've been using from 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is the sin that sneaks up on you. Not among the scandalous sins that we think about, but it tangles up maybe more believers than anything else. David has an affair with a married woman named Bathsheba. She says, I am pregnant. He decides to call her husband, Uriah, in from a military campaign, hoping that Uriah will sleep with his wife and then think that this is his child and the world will never know otherwise. Uriah comes in. David asks him how the battle's going, how the soldiers are, things like that. He says, well, you go on home and enjoy yourself. Uriah refuses to go home. He sleeps on the steps of the palace. David was told, hey, he didn't go home. So he asked Uriah, why didn't you go home? And that's where verse 11 picks up. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening... Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die Joab never questioned the orders he did what his king commanded and then he sent a messenger to David in verse 23 the messenger said to David the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, 
Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. What an awful story. What an awful thing. What a horrible mar on David's life. Think about it. When the chronicler summarizes King David's reign, as he does each one of the kings in the north and the southern kingdoms, he says, you know, either the king did right in the eyes of the Lord or the king did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And in David's case, he said, David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. And that is his legacy. Peyton Manning was quoted this week saying, it takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to ruin it. And he said, I always want to be ready for the five. On my guard, at my best, lest I tear down in a moment what it take a, takes a lifetime to build. It is the sin of sloth that David is entangled in. And the narrative wants you to get this. The writer wants you to know. He wants you to think about these magnificent words from Uriah, who was a Hittite, not even born an Israelite, not born part of the covenant people. He wants you to think about these words that he gives to the king, this resounding rebuke to the man who is said to be after God's own heart, who wrote, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He wants you to contemplate Uriah's loyalty, honesty, truthfulness, dedication, and commitment in contrast to the king's behavior in this matter. It's intended that you will reflect upon it. Because these two walk very different paths in this narrative and story. When David says, why didn't you go down to your house? Uriah says, the ark is in a tent. He brings up the ark, not Noah's ark. Okay? It's the ark of the covenant. Raiders of the lost ark. You got what ark it is? All right. 
It's the box with the poles. And in the box, they put the tablets of the Ten Commandments that Moses carved out. And Aaron's rod that budded. This is the most sacred symbol of God's presence among them. And most normally, the ark is kept in the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, and it is a tent. It's made out of skins. It has this little skeletal framework, and they put it together, and then they collapse it. And if the fire moves or the cloud by day, if it moves away from over the ark, wherever it goes, they quickly collapse the tabernacle, everybody closes up their tents, and they follow the fire and the cloud wherever it goes. And when it stops, they put the tabernacle right underneath it. It is a mobile house of worship, and in it is the Holy of Holies, the most sacred space in all of Israel. And in the Holy of Holies, there is simply and only the Ark of the Covenant. Solomon, David's son, will build a temple patterned after the tabernacle in that building made of stone on the temple mount will be the holy of holies and the ark will be placed there until it is lost. Uriah the Hittite, not born into the covenant of Israel, yet understands how important the ark is what a symbol it is to the presence of God among them. And when David says, why don't you go home, the first words out of his mouth are, it's the ark. The ark. It's in a tent. I think he means that they've taken the ark of the covenant into battle. They did that sometimes. That's how they lost the ark to the Philistines on one occasion. They took it into battle. And I think that's what happened here. Some people think, no, Uriah's just saying that the ark is in a tent. And so are Judah and Israel and the commander Joab and the servants of David, the army of Israel. They're all in tents in the field. They're camped out in the open. Whatever it is, this one truth is for sure. The ark of the covenant is a mobile house of worship God is on the move among his people. The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, they move at God's bidding and his people follow them. And when you get slothful in your Christian life, you get immobile, inactive, and you stop following the cloud and the fire. And Uriah will not go home and sleep in his own bed with his wife because the ark is in the field. And he's not about to get immobile and inactive while the ark is in a tent. David, on the other hand, is pictured lounging around the palace, having sent out his military leaders and the, the army to confront the Ammonites. He's been sleeping, and he's not resting very well. 
So he just gets out to kind of meander around, take a look at things, see how things are going there in Jerusalem. And that's when he sees Bathsheba. The story is written so you will see that the king has lost his sense of purpose. There was a time when David knew what he was up to, when he understood the call of God upon his life, when Goliath sent out his challenge to the armies of Israel, it incensed David. And he said, who is this pagan that he can speak against the armies of Israel? I'll go out and fight him. There was a time when David was driven by this sense of purpose, when he knew what he was about in his life, and he went out to seize what God had called him to do. But not now. Not now. Somehow he lost his way and his sense of purpose. Everybody who's going to follow God on this planet needs to be clear about their purpose. Why you are a living, breathing human being on the planet. Why are you here? What are you up to? What are you trying to do? That sense of purpose is very important to your daily life and well-being. Your spiritual journey on this planet, it is guided by this goal, this sense that you have of what God has called you to do. It is why the Apostle Paul was unable to deter him from his path. He said, this one thing I do, forgetting the things behind, reaching forth to the things that are before, pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Why did he change his world because he had this sense of burning purpose one thing he was going to do at one time it was white hot it was a pinpoint focus for David the king but no longer it is why he lays aside the discipline that kept him in the channel of God's grace he succumbed to the sin of sloth do you know why you're here do you have such a keen sense of purpose that you could today write it down on a piece of paper? The goal of my life, the purpose of my life is, is it clear enough? Russell Wilson and Peyton Manning know what they want to do this afternoon. If you capture a corner, either one of them, they will tell you, we want to win it all, right? They know what they're up to. They're not sitting in their locker room saying, oh, we can't do this. I don't know what I'm doing here. That is not happening to them. These men are driven by a clear sense of purpose. They have a clear goal. It is important if you're going to win in sports that you have a clear goal, that you know what you're trying to do. And it is also important in life that you know what you're trying to do. Can you write down your purpose in a sentence? I want you to, I want you to do this, okay? This is your homework. I want you to write it down. You say, well, what's your purpose? Well, when I was 17, I was sitting on my bed in a little rock house in the middle of nowhere. If you threw a dart at the map of Texas and you were actually to hit the middle, you'd hit a little place called Center City. 
because they thought it was the center of Texas. And that's where I was sitting, in the center of Texas, 17 years old with my guitar, and I wrote a little song that we sang a thousand times. And it says this, I want my life to count for Jesus. No other goal is there for me. I want my life to be a witness to his name. I want to serve my Savior. Let this my motto be. It's 44 years later, people. Having a goal in your life is very important. It directs who you become. And it's got to be clear enough that you can speak it and say it. And if it's not clear what you're trying to do on the planet, you are in danger of meandering around and wasting the energy and time and opportunity God has given you. Uriah knows that the ark is in the field and that's where he's supposed to be. Jesus said, my father is always at work to this very day. And I too am working. Whatever I see the Father doing, that's what I do. Jesus was mightily at work in his world doing what he saw his Father doing. He had an intense passion about his life, his purpose. He wanted to follow the Father. He wanted to please the Father in every way. It shaped and drove our Savior. And you must be one who says, Jesus is Lord, however you articulate it, and I am going to follow him no matter what. And when the ark moves, this man moves too. When God gives new direction, I'm there. If the pillar of cloud goes, that's where I go. The ark is in a tent. You don't drive those tent pegs down too deep because you know that you're a pilgrim on the planet. And maybe it's just psychologically or in other ways, but you got to be ready to go. Maybe not geographically all the time, but you write God just a blank check and say, here I am, Lord, and here's my signature, and when the fire moves, that's when I move to. And be tuned in to what God's doing around you and ready to go. The contrast between Uriah and David is David's laying in his couch sipping Gatorade and not concerned about the purpose for which God called him, and Uriah wants to be right there where the ark is. Uriah says something else. He says the commander Joab and the army of Israel, they're camped in the open. Your team is hard at work. The generals say that there's nothing like the connection that happens with a band of soldiers in battle. They say that somebody who's never been in that situation where your life is on the line because you gotta have somebody's back, that you can't even understand the depth of the commitment. The band of brothers is true, and Uriah feels it. He is one of David's mighty men. He's one of the leaders of the armies of Israel. He knows where his place is, and he's thinking now, here I am at home enjoying the food and the wine of the king while my band of brothers is out there in the open country, and that's where I need to be. 
part of the purpose of Uriah's life is to be on this team, to be with these men who have such a clear purpose about what they are doing in the world and part of your calling on this planet. And this is so important to get, Lone Ranger. Part of your calling on this planet is to be part of a team with a great, inspiring purpose. You can't do it on your own, and even if you could, you would not have the impact that you will have if you join a band of brothers and sisters and commit your life to the purposes of God with that team. That's why Jesus called his friends around the table, and he gave them the ordinance of baptism and the Lord's Supper and the presence of the Holy Spirit to solidify them into a unit. He called them to be one. And not just them, but you. So that the scripture says, when you are saved, when you are called by God into the family of faith, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. You have a social event that happens to you. You stand alone before God to give your answer to him. Nobody can give that answer but you. Are you going to commit your life to Jesus Christ? Do you believe in his death, burial, and resurrection? Are you going to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus? And you alone must stand up and give your answer to God. But once you give your answer to God, you are baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. And now you are connected to a team, to a band that is committed to making the love of Christ and the good news of the gospel known around the world. And you must join in. It is God's purpose for you. O thou who resists affiliation and commitment. And I know some of us do. We just don't want to join anything. I was there when my father was asked about joining a group. I was a boy. And he said, no thanks to some pretty impressive people. He said, no thanks. And afterward, I said, Dad, well, Dad, that sounded like a good idea. Uh, What's up? You know what my dad said? This is my dad's answer, all right? It's not the answer for everybody. Dad said, I am part of the church of Jesus Christ, and everything I do, I'm pouring into that. This one thing I do. Man, I was impressed as a boy that my father was committed to the corporate work of the gospel. That he wanted to see his sons and his daughters go around the world as missionaries. And it delighted his heart to see us preach the gospel and share the good news of Jesus Christ and be part of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I didn't start the church, okay? It wasn't my idea or invention. This is Jesus. Jesus said, Peter, upon this rock of your confession, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon this rock, I will build my church. It's the first time in the Gospels. 
Jesus uses the word church. I will build my church. And then he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Don't you love that verse? That's in Matthew 16, okay? Great passage, great verse. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. I always wondered about that, you know? Gates. They're not like cannons. You don't take gates out into the field, do you? Gates are defensive. They prevent the enemy from pillaging your city. Jesus so conceived that his followers would be a mighty band of sisters and brothers who would go out to confront the forces of evil in the world and they would attack the gates of hell and the gates of hell could not prevail against his church. He intended for his church to be deployed into their communities with a great sense of purpose to change the world through the love of Christ. Isn't it great what Jesus saw in his church? And brother, sister, you confess Jesus as Savior, you need to be vitally connected to this band of sisters and brothers. David is disconnected, and it's part of his slothfulness. He feels disconnected. He feels distant. He sent off his soldiers. They're fighting a war. Does he really care? who's living and who's dying? Maybe so, but he doesn't act like it. He's disconnected from them. Sloth arises when you are disconnected from the people who are supposed to be your team. Being on a team gives you an accountability like nothing else in life. When you have when you have connected to brothers and sisters who are pursuing the goal of God's gospel, the glorious work of the kingdom and the earth, then you have an accountability toward people that you see every day and you pray for and they pray for you and that accountability works against the sin of sloth in your life. But you try to be the lone ranger in this thing and pretty soon you're going to be like Elijah, that prophet, who runs in the wilderness and he hides in a cave. And when God finally hides in, finds him hidden in his cave, he calls him out there. He says, what's wrong with you? And the still small voice is that word. What are you doing here, Elijah? He says, I'm the only one that's left. Everybody else has deserted me. I tell you, the Lone Ranger way is not how God called you. I know some people that want, don't want to talk about being members of a body. Hey, Members is a good Bible word. Read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. You'll see it over and over again. You are members of a body. You belong to a body. And your spiritual health depends on feeling and being vitally connected to that band of brothers. Oh, what God is going to do through you if you will bring your gifts to that team and be faithful in the work God has called you to do together with your sisters and brothers. What a thing he will do in you. Uriah knew that he needed to be with his team on the battlefield. The slothfulness of David is being without his purpose and being disconnected from the team God called him to be part of. Now this next part I want you to get ready for it, okay? The drug is in your hand. 
Uriah won't go down and sleep with his wife. But David's got a kind of date, a date rape drug here. It's the old standard. Alcohol. Hey, people will do things under the influence they'd never do when they were sober. Did you know that? So David pulls one. It's as old as humanity. The scripture says David got him drunk. David got him drunk. Did you ever get anybody drunk? I hope you never got anybody drunk thinking this good person who has good morals will be looser and more susceptible to manipulation if I can get them drunk. There's the sin of drunkenness, and it's a sin to be drunk, okay? The Bible writers are unanimous on that. You shouldn't be getting drunk. Every idle word you speak, every evil deed you do, God is going to be judging that whether you're sober or drunk. If you make yourself out of your mind with drugs or alcohol, you're still accountable, all right, for the words and deeds that you do. It's not an excuse, not even in the courts, and certainly not before God Almighty who says, don't get drunk. Drunkenness is wrong. I know we're about to have Mardi Gras, all right? I know this. But God doesn't excuse your behavior. If you're drunk and you got a mask on, you know, it's not like God says, hey, nobody knows him. I'm going to give him a pass on this one. That is not going to happen to you. You're accountable for every word and deed, all right? Now, David sins doubly. Not only does he get him drunk, but he gets him drunk for the purpose of manipulating his behavior and hoping that his morals will loosen. And he will do under the influence what he will not do when he's sober. Brothers and sisters, alcohol, prescription medicines used improperly, illegal drugs can compromise you in your walk with God in a way almost like nothing else. You watch out for the mind-altering drugs that you can get so easily that are out there. And sometimes it's your friends and people who you think are looking out for your best interest who are trying to get you high or drunk. And that's what happened to Uriah. The worst enemy in Uriah's life was not out there in the battlefield, not in that enemy city wielding a sword. The worst enemy he had was the king in Jerusalem in the palace. And he didn't know it. He didn't know that David's integrity was compromised. And he was going to try to manipulate him to do something that he knew is wrong. But he might do it under the influence. You be careful when some person you respect says, Hey, have you seen these? Man, they make you feel good. Anything you take for the purpose of dulling your mind and senses, for the purpose of altering your mental framework. Alcohol, marijuana, improper use of prescription drugs, it's forbidden. 
don't you do it. Did you know that the word sorcery in the Bible is the word from which we build pharmacy? That's the word we made from Greek into English. There are things people do under the influence they will not do any other way. Young person, you just take my counsel on this one and you listen to the word of God. You look at what David's trying to do to Uriah and you say in your heart, Lord, make me strong enough that I will not succumb to this kind of manipulation. It gets you off track. It takes you off course. It's not part of the purpose for which Jesus called you. And when it's offered to you and that good friend of yours says, hey, come on on, come on back. I know you're saved. I know you go to church, but come on. We want you to join us. You'll get lots of invitations back into the world from which you came. All those friends, they want you back. You know why they want you back? Because you being not there is a judgment on their life every day that they live and they just can't stand it that you're trying to live a holy, godly life when they're out there living the opposite. If you'll just join them, they will feel so much better about their sin. Just say no. Get that band of brothers to support you. Be together in your sobriety and say, this is part of who we are as followers of Jesus we are not going to fall into this trap. The drug is in your hand. Folks, the letter's on its way. The picture of this loyal, fervent soldier, one of David's mighty men, a convert from the Hittite nation, the picture of him taking the letter, his death warrant that David wrote, and carrying it to Joab. It disturbs my soul that David would do this, that this bloody man Joab does without question what the king tells him to do, and that Uriah, faithful Uriah, carries his death sentence to the king. Uriah didn't know what was in the letter. He didn't know that David would go this far. When he said the ark is in the field and Judah and Israel are in tents, he intended for that to be a rebuke of David's slothfulness, of his inactivity and his sin. He intended for that. But the notion that the king would go this far, it had not crossed his mind. Sometimes the seeds to our own undoing are right there in our hand. We don't have to look far. Maybe we've just wandered from the purpose that once was so keen and passionate in our heart. Maybe we've become disconnected from the brothers and sisters who are pursuing the work of God and we're out there on our own and we think nobody's watching. Maybe we're starting to dabble with stuff that changes our mood and our mind. Whatever it is, God says, I want you accountable to me and me alone. I want your heart with me and your mind with me. I want you involved in the work of my church. 
Commit yourself to the purposes of God and know what your own particular purpose is. And God will use you with that intense focus to change the world around you. Let's bow together. This is a private and personal matter. So often as I talk about these things, I'm thinking and praying for you that the Holy Spirit will apply you like it needs to be applied to your heart and that you will listen. God, we're listening to you. We want to hear from you. We want to be yours. We want to follow you. We want to live a life that pleases you. God, we want you to say, well done. We want to have the maximum impact we can for your work, your good news, and your gospel. So, Lord, show us in this hour, in this moment. Help us examine ourselves. And if we've gotten inactive, immobile, if we sidelined ourselves, wake us up. Revive us again. Help us to recommit ourselves to the things we know are true and live our life conformed to your purpose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.